Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today, we're talking to the dietitians behind Plant-Based Juniors, a community for parents and educators interested in properly implementing plant-based diets for children. Created by Whitney and Alex, both moms and registered dietitians, Plant-Based Juniors is dedicated to filling the gap in credible pediatric nutrition information for plant-based infants and children. PBJs promotes an all-inclusive, predominantly plant-based approach, supporting all families from vegan to vegetarian to flexitarian. Basically, if parents want to get more plants on the plate, they want to help. PBJs has multiple resources available to support the feeding journey, including their new book, The Plant-Based Baby and Toddler. In this episode, we discuss nutrients important for infants on a predominantly plant-based diet, starting solids, how to maximize nutrition for your child in a kid-friendly way, and strategies to manage picky eating, and what are some things that can increase the likelihood of picky eaters. And not to forget about the health of our mamas, we also discuss the nutrients women who are pregnant or trying to conceive on a predominantly plant-based diet should pay attention to and consume. Whitney and Alex have so many tips and strategies to share to get more plants on your plate, but present it in a way that is realistic for most families and in a judgment-free zone, sharing their own feeding struggles with their little ones. All right. Well, welcome Whitney and Alex. I'm so happy to one, see your faces. It's been a very long time. I think last time we saw each other was in LA when you launched your pregnancy guide. Um, but I'm so happy to have you on. Yeah. And talk about your new book that's coming out. Um, and you guys just have so much to share for mamas and toddlers and, you know, kids alike, especially as your own start to grow up. Well, yeah, thanks for thank having you. us, Kate. Yeah, we're used to our uh, at least bi-yearly meetings at Fenty <laughs> or the Natural Foods Expo. So it's nice to see you virtually. <laughs> right, something. So I definitely want to dive into, um, you know, nutrition for our mamas, our kiddos. But first, I just would love for you guys to tell everyone a little bit about how you two came together to create Plant-Based Juniors and what's really like the goal and the mission behind it um, and with your new book coming out as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I really Plant-Based Juniors was born out of the the need to create what we couldn't find. You know, Whitney and I, um, obviously both dietitians and we were friends, but then we became pregnant. And I think like a lot of parents can relate to the moment you become responsible, uh, for someone else's life, you know, you're just like, you start to question things and fear sets in and it's like, okay, I've been, you know, plant-based predominantly plant-based for a long time, but is it safe for me to be this way pregnant? Can I raise my kid this way? And, you know, Whitney and I were kind of, uh, talking back and forth. And we just thought, gosh, you know what? We both have, you know, these degrees in nutrition and obviously are still having these questions. We need to share all of the research that we are finding ourselves because it's just hard to find. We couldn't find a lot of evidence-based information out there. So that's really why Plant-Based Unions was started. 
it's evolved uh, over time. We we consider ourselves to be a very inclusive community. Uh, we welcome all eaters. So whether you are a strict vegan or a flexitarian, or you know, sometimes I dabble in a meatless Monday kind of gal, like we're we're here for you. Uh, our mission really is to help parents get more plants on the plate. We feel like you know the the average American, let alone the average child, really doesn't meet uh, all of the various plant requirements, and we know it can be a struggle. You know, there's a lot of things that go into family feeding and with kids. And it's just sort of our mission to help support uh, both nutritionally, but also with all of the other considerations that come into feeding kids healthy. Love that. And you know what I love there too? And it's something I've always loved about what, you know, the content you guys put out there is it's always about, like you said, Alex, Alex, like adding, right. Adding plants to your plate versus taking away certain things. Right. Um, and not putting yourselves in a box, right? Like being open to whoever, you know, wants to join your community, um, or just learn a little bit more on just how they can eat a healthier diet and get more plants on their plate, whether they have meat on that plate as well, but what are some great ways that they can do that and do that with their kids, which we will get into, um, (laughs) because I know we got a lot of picky eaters out there, um, including, um, some of my nieces and nephews, well, but, it, it um, can be a struggle. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think any parent does well when they're like, oh, you're not doing this right. Or you need to do this. I mean, I think that we can all relate. So like, we all want our kids to eat healthy, right? I don't think there's any parent out there that doesn't have that as one of their goals. And I think that we're, we're really there to support. Uh, we are, you know, like I said, we really try to be inclusive, non-shaming. So um, we're glad that resonates with you as well. We also always like to say that we're driven by research versus dogma. So when you come to plant-based juniors, Mm -hmm. you know that we're not going to be holding tight to outdated ideals or trying to cherry pick studies just to support our agenda. Um, We're really just trying to provide the most up-to-date scientifically based information possible. And you guys do that in a really great way too, um, in a especially fun way. <laughs> yes, in a fun way, um, and with the YouTube channel, but that's something we all know is, I still think lacking, especially with social media with, you know, I feel like everyone under the sun has a blog now and they really, it's freedom of speech. People will write whatever they think and want. Yeah. And, and also it's understanding. And this is part of our background being dietitians or anyone in the medical mm-hmm. profession is being able to read research and understand it and also understand too, you know, was it a study with a lot of limitations yes. that may not be the best one to pull from? Um, and so I do really think that's part of our jobs as dietitians is to be able to sort through that information, um, and present people with the facts. And you guys do a fabulous job of that. Um, so let's first dive into our mamas. So for someone who is on a predominantly plant-based diet, whether they are already pregnant or trying to conceive, what would you guys say are the top nutrients they should be mindful of that you, and that you find most people aren't mindful of? Yeah. Well, first, I just want to say that a lot of these nutrients we're going to talk about, yeah, we're talking about predominantly plant-based or plant more fully plant-based mamas, but a lot of these things apply to anyone, regardless what what kind of diet you're on. Most people don't get enough DHA. Most women are not getting enough choline. And even though these are things that are, could be easier perhaps to meet on a, on an omnivorous diet, it's still the bulk of, of, of pregnant women that are missing out on these. So it's not like 
these are not just plant-based issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, and Alex, you can jump in here too, but if we're talking about nutrients for, for pregnancy, there's the first one that you always hear about, which is folic acid or folate. Folate is the natural form and folic acid is the synthetic version of this B vitamin. And we know that we women need it even prior to conception. It's, it's really important to be getting adequate amounts because this helps with neural tube closure and women who are deficient in this, um, have higher rates of, of defect pregnancy defects and and neural tube, um, issues. And so we recommend that women start folic acid or folate, whichever works for you best, at least three months before trying to conceive. And an easy way to do this is just to start on a prenatal vitamin about three months before trying to start getting pregnant. Um, the second one, a big one is DHA, which you guys know all about over here. Um, and again, while DHA is n- the main dietary source is seafood, most people are not having two to three servings of seafood a week. So really, um, and this is supported by the recommendations from the American uh, Pregnancy Association, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics, really all women should be supplementing um, DHA during pregnancy and, and during lactation as well. Um, the third nutrient that you probably, that might not be covered in your prenatal is, is choline, which I just mentioned as well. Um, studies have shown that up to about half of pregnant women, again, regardless of diet, aren't getting enough choline and choline is an essential B like vitamin that, um, is important for baby's brain development and may also play a role in, in early neural tube, uh, formation and, they are just kind of beginning to figure out how it interacts with different um, DNA methylation pathways and with folate and B12. So a lot of prenatal vitamins don't include choline. So that is another one that you, that you may want to consider supplementing. Yeah. I'd, I'd also add in, you know, iron of course is essential. The, the good news is that a lot of prenatals, um, have, you know, if not the full RDA for iron close to it. So, um, this isn't something that, that if you're plant-based, especially you have to worry too much about that. We do recommend that plant-based moms or predominantly plant-based mamas to be, uh, do get higher levels of iron in their diet. And that's also to account for the fact that plant-based sources of iron. So the non-heme iron version is going to be a little bit harder to absorb. Um, zinc, you know, is found in similar foods that iron is again, that's covered in your, um, your prenatal usually, Um, The one thing that I think is really specific to uh, plant-based moms and something that I feel like Whitney and I don't feel like we hear enough about in the plant-based community is B12. Obviously B12 is important, um, but I think that people will be surprised to know you need a lot more B12 than just what's considered to be adequate from the RDAs, especially during pregnancy and breastfeeding. So the RDA uh, is currently set at 2.6 micrograms for pregnancy and breastfeeding, but we recommend levels of at least 150 micrograms per day. And that's because the absorption is so much different uh, when it comes to supplementation than it is from food. And when you're eating food sources of B12, you're eating it throughout the day, not in one mega dose. And just to account for how much you're going to essentially lose, uh, you really need to make sure you're having higher amounts. So sometimes we'll hear comments like, oh, I was plant-based and 
uh, during my pregnancy, I was taking my prenatal that had, you know, 2.6 micrograms of B12 per day, and I was still deficient in B12. And that's really because they weren't taking enough. So really kind of just, you know, reminding everyone that you need higher levels, uh, probably higher than you think. So just taking an, an, an adequate amount of B12 is going to be really important. And the vast majority of prenatal vitamins out there do not have do not. high enough <laughs> amounts of B12. So it's likely that you'll have to take ad- additional single supplement of B12. Yeah. I'm really glad you guys brought up the fact that a lot of prenatals are lacking some of these key nutrients. Um, I mean, particularly, you know, we talked about choline, we talked about DHA one, two, you know, or they'll have like 25 milligrams. I know. And then they'll promote DHA, it, but they'll promote it right on the front plus DHA. Right. Um, or even some are lower in vitamin D. Yes. And the like more research that's, yeah. And the more research that's coming out, um, is actually suggesting closer to 4,000 I use and some yeah. have less than that. It is, it is a bit better. I will say I found on some, but I really want to encourage people to read, you know, don't just go to the store and pick out any prenatal that's there, but really take a look at it. And if you need more help deciphering it, um, go to your, you know, your doctor or your registered dietitian and have them actually go through it with you and make sure you're getting the right amounts, the right forms as well. That can be ideal for absorption. Um, yeah, but I'm curious slightly depending on your specific needs. So if Mm -hmm. you were iron deficient to begin with, you're definitely going to need a higher amount of iron. However, if your iron levels are, are normal and you are using best practices, say always pairing, um, your plant rich iron rich foods with a source of vitamin C to maximize absorption, then you probably don't need to be on the very high end of, of iron intake. And that's the way it is for almost all of the, all of the nutrients, you know, you could actually, um, we always, I'll, I'll preface this by saying we always recommend a B12 supplement as the safest, reliable, the most reliable form of B12 for plant-based dieters. But if you are having multiple foods throughout the day that have B12, then you might be a candidate for taking B12 once a week versus, mm-hmm. um, a, a bigger dose once a week versus making sure that every single day you're meeting, um, our max requirement as well. So yeah. it's, there's a lot of individual factors. To, and I will say too, you know, I, I really feel for the average consumer. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's hard to, to navigate through all this. And, you know, we hear a lot of times from, from our readers too, who will say things like, oh, my pediatrician said this was okay. Or, you know, they, they said that, and it's just, it, it is, it can feel hard sometimes. Um, we do have a free supplement guide that is available on our website where we really tried to say like, here are all the things you should look for. We do have a few recommendations of sort of our favorite brands and the brands that need it, but really the idea of like, this is what you need to look for Here's sort of the checklist. So if you're not sure you can take that and sort of say, okay, yes, my prenatal has this and it's going to be a good option or gosh, it's missing this. I really need to make sure I'm getting that either from food or from additional supplementation. And we have that in our book as well, coming up for children's supplementation. There's actually a tear out page with a fill in the blank with factors to consider, um, for each nutrient. So you can ask yourself, Oh, is my child a flexitarian? And they eat, um, they eat, this food at least once or twice a week, then maybe they need a little bit of let little bit less of this one in their supplement. Um, so that you can kind of take into consideration those individualized aspects. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love that. It's a tear out too. No. And you have to take <laughs> in the individual aspects too, because even Whitney, what made me think of when we're, when you brought up iron was yeah. Some women, if your levels are good, 
iron can also make you more constipated during pregnancy, Mm -hmm. which um, usually there's, you know, sometimes some type of constipation at some point during pregnancy. (laughs) So you don't want to add to that. Um, so definitely, you know, make sure you are consulting with someone first, but it is funny. I've had, you know, numerous clients where they've come to me and, you know, they're at least a few weeks pregnant and they did, they just chose, they went to target. Mm -hmm. They chose the first prenatal they saw. They chose, you know, the first gummy form they saw because they're like, why (laughs) wouldn't I take the gummy instead of the pill and went with it. And then you read the back and you're like, Oh, this is like missing a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, when Alex and I put together our supplement guide, we went and we reviewed like pretty much oh every God. prenatal vitamin that was out there. And like a lot of the ones that our, our followers ask about, and we actually didn't find one that is like the perfect one. Every single one, we had a little something to pick apart and you can see that in the guide next is we still wanted to give people options though. So we still listed yeah. like, I think at least five. And then in parentheses next to them is like little too low in D. <laughs> needs a little bit more B12. And so then we can explain to people, pair this with this because it's just, it's there. It doesn't exist for one. And, um, understandably so because different, different people need different things. So yeah, completely. Um, so I'm curious to how then, you know, postpartum for women. And then once you have baby, right? Once baby's there, how do the nutrient needs change for mom and then for, you know, your newborn baby as well? So they don't change too, too much. And you can see this reflected in the RDAs. Basically all of your macro and micro needs go up a little bit. Um, for example, if we're talking about calories in the third trimester of pregnancy, you need about 450 additional calories a day while you're lactating, you need 500 additional calories a day. So everything just kind of like bumps up a tiny bit. When you're breastfeeding, you're going to be extremely hungry. So your intake will probably bump up a little bit as well and just naturally cover all of those things. So we kind of recommend basically the same supplement routine as well. There aren't a lot of postnatal specific um, multivitamins out there. And if there are, I almost think it's more of a marketing thing than anything. Like you can probably just stay on your prenatal vitamin throughout the postpartum period and continue taking that DHA, continue taking that choline if you're taking it and, you know, continue to try to optimize your, your, uh, whole foods intake of, of nutrients as well. Yeah. I think the only thing I think about postpartum just as a tiny tweak is, continue to take your DHA, (laughs) but add in that EPA too, more so for mood support. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's really just for mama. It's not not really so much for baby at all. Baby's probably happy. I mean, they're, they're eating all day, sleeping all day. Life's good. Um, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But that's going to be a big one for mom. So still continuing your DHA and DHA for baby as well. Um, but is there anything else specific for baby that they will need? So if you're exclusively, I just jump in with hydration. I almost forgot your hydration needs naturally are going to increase a lot. So, uh, breastfeeding mamas need 16 cups of fluid a day. Luckily that those fluid needs don't have to be met just through water. We're talking about fluid that's found in food. We are even talking about coffee and tea, but you're going to need to up, up your intake of fluids. 
Yeah. And I was just going to say, uh, when it comes to infancy, uh, you know, your, your breast milk and formula, uh, whatever you choose to, to feed your baby is going to cover most of the nutrition that you need, uh, fully fed formula babies that will cover all of it. Uh, but for exclusively breastfeeding mamas, uh, there is the recommendation to provide babies with 400 IUs of vitamin D per day. So okay. just making awesome. sure that you do that. And, and how that's do because you guys, breast yeah. milk is naturally low in vitamin D and probably throughout our human history, babies used to get the vitamin D from the sun because our bodies can make it in our skin through cholesterol. Uh, but now we try to keep babies out of the sun so that they don't get skin cancer. So that's why babies aren't getting their D. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I want to dive into some of the topics of your new book coming out. Um, and I was trying to pick certain things as well that I feel like are kind of, you know, those those sore points for a lot of moms and a lot of families. So thinking chronologically, let's start with, you know, baby led weaning and introducing like those first foods to your baby. How do you guys approach that? Yeah. So just sort of, uh, for anyone who's listening, who's like, what is, I've never heard of that, uh, baby led weaning and, and really anything, right? Like we, at some point we are trying to slowly, uh, introduce solid food to baby, right? So they will continue to receive breast milk formula, uh, into the first year of life at a minimum for, uh, breastfeeding but they, they want solid foods at some point. So baby led weaning is just sort of the idea that you're not spoon feeding your child purees. You're essentially giving them finger foods right from the start and they are feeding themselves. Um, you're doing it in a safe and appropriate way, right? So you're not giving babies, you know, hunks of grapes, uh, to begin with, you're giving them things that they can pick up and not on, uh, to be able to eat safely. And, and there's lots of reasons for this. Um, we also in our book talk about baby led weaning, but also a traditional purees approach because we know that for a lot of families and for baby too, you know, they may not pick up on baby led weaning right away, or they may prefer purees, or they might have different, you know, needs that they need to be met, uh, through, through spoon feeding. And so we, we dive into both of those techniques. Um, and then also if you want to do a combo, uh, approach, and then of course we also provide recipes as well. But yeah, we're big advocates of, of giving babies at least the opportunity to feed themselves right from the start and right from the start would be six months. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and really the reason for that, you know, I think if, if we think about sort of traditional, you know, feeding a baby, right. You are in charge for the most part as that feeding parent or caregiver for kind of controlling how much they eat. It's much easier to overfeed a child when you're in charge, you know, it's, it's tempting, right? Like, Oh, there's a little bit left in this jar here, just one more bite, or I think you're still hungry here. Just try this. And you really take away the ability for the child to self-regulate. And that's one of the things that we're a big proponent of. And the baby led weaning, um, approach is that right from the start, baby's able to tell you exactly how much food they need. And, you know, we think about as we, as we come into, you know, childhood and, and teenage years and, you know, adulthood, how wonderful this gift that you're really able to, you know, sort of regulate your hunger and fullness cues right from the start, instead of having that being overridden by someone sort of, you know, spoon feeding and forcing perhaps more food than you need. And I'm sure too, you know, you just want to make sure they're appropriately covered yes, and yes. dressed and when they are feeding. Well, <laughs> listen, I do a lot of laundry. <laughs> 
<laughs> There's I only mean, so many tarps you can put down both over your entire child and on the floor. Uh, yes. Although laziness got to embrace the mess. <laughs> you got it. You got to embrace this. And, and I will also say, you know, nutritionally there, there are benefits for baby getting messy. You know, I think that's another benefit of baby led weaning or really, you know, feeding it, self-feeding, you can self-feed purees too with a spoon or, you know, with your hands, but you get, baby gets to experience what food is right from the start. You know, food has texture, food has different spices and flavors, and even allowing them to get messy, you know, food is so much more than just taste. It is feel, it is experience. Even if your child is not eating that food, if they're touching it and picking them up and maybe smearing it on their body, I mean, that's all exposure. That's all, you know, using the senses to sort of explore that food. And and we do want to encourage that even as annoying as it is. And you know what, honestly, (laughs) I strip my child down to a diaper half the time and just let her have at it because I'm just, I'm just lazy uh, when it comes to cleaning up. Uh, yeah. spills all over there. That sounds that sounds smart, Alex. Not lazy, but <laughs> wow. I'm curious. Do you guys baby. have certain? <laughs> you learn a lot from your first. Right. Um, do you do you guys have an opinion on starting with certain foods, like or avoiding certain foods at the start? Like I know there's a lot of talk of avoiding sweet foods first because then your baby may want sweet. Um, but do you have any you know opinions on that? So. We, we recommend avoiding added sugar before the age of two, and that's in line with the WHO and the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations. But sweet flavors in general, no. There's no research to show that serving vegetables before fruits or fruits before vegetables is going to affect their, their lifelong preference. However, there's emerging research about, um, about how our preferences are shaped and about um, about taste preference and and taste bud formation that shows that really there's this window of opportunity from about four months to seven months of age when babies are very receptive to new flavors. And from the start, so let's go rewind a little bit. Um, Biologically, we're already programmed to like sweet flavors. Like that's why babies like breast milk uh, when they're out in nature, crawling around the cave. If they're looking for sweet flavors like fruit, that's going to provide nutrients. And we're also biologically programmed to dislike bitter flavors at an early age. And that's a protective mechanism because again, when you're crawling around the cave, sticking things in your mouth, poisonous, uh, plants are often bitter. So we, while we don't say that you should do one fruits or vegetables before one another, we will say that you should put an emphasis on the flavors and vegetables, just because those are the ones that you actually kind of have to learn to like babies already like sweets, you know, the sweets aren't going to get in the way of their vegetable exposure, but vegetables are the ones that are going to actually have to take a lot more training and a lot more exposure to learn to like. Yeah. So, so more about variety, would you both say like for like four to seven months, really trying to get just a variety of foods, variety of flavors, uh, just having them be exposed. Yeah. So we, um, in our book, we mainly talk about starting baby led weaning and starting actual, um, introduction to solids when you're actually getting nutrition from foods at six months, when babies are actually able to pick up food, put it in their mouth, sit up straight. They're starting to lose the tongue reflex. Um, but again, like I said, there's new emerging research about this, this short window from four to six months where they don't need nutrition from food, but where it could be a good time to start introducing flavors. So my daughter, 
daughter um, actually just turned four months. And so what I'm doing is I will just stick my pinky finger in some mashed food and just let her lick it once a day at, at dinners of, of a vegetable to help started starting to introduce those less likable, bitter, earthy, grassy flavors of, of vegetables. Yeah, no, I love that. And that's, that's two months of less mess, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a fun time to kind of start getting that exposure and that introduction before she's actually going to start eating. Awesome. Now let's, you know, thinking about our, you know, our next phase and toddlers, do you guys have kind of your top tips for maximizing nutrition, you know, for toddlers and even younger, but just certain things that you, you want parents to pay attention to in particular? Yeah. I mean, I, Whitney and I both have toddlers and, you know, it's what you, what you want them to eat and, and what they actually eat sometimes are vastly different on that (laughs) spectrum. Um, I, I think one thing that I, that two, well, a few things that I really like to encourage parents is first you have to serve the food for your child to be able to eat it. And what I mean by that is we hear so often, you know, parents say things like, "Ah, oh, my child doesn't eat that. And you have to serve it more often for them to be able to uh, be accepting of it. Right. So for instance, if you give your child, let's say some, uh, you know, pasta with a side of broccoli and they don't eat the broccoli, it is so normal for a parent to say, oh, my child doesn't like that. I'm not going to contribute to that food waste. And so, and therefore I'm just not going to keep serving broccoli to them. I try, they don't like it. And really the opposite should be true. The first time that you gave it to them, they didn't like it, but that doesn't mean that they won't like it. And it's really a long game. And I can tell you it is frustrating and annoying and difficult and all of those things when it comes to being like, just put it in your mouth. What, what do you mean? Just eat it. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's true. And, and continuing to serve and expose, I think is really key, especially in those toddler years where, you know, our children are really, you know, coming into their own. So they're deciding, you know, what kinds of foods they like, they're becoming more autonomous. They're trying to figure out sort of like how they fit in this feeding uh, dynamic. And I think as parents, it's really important to be able to say, you know, I'm, I'm in charge of feeding you this food, but then you're in charge of eating it and knowing that it may take dozens and dozens of times. I mean, Whitney can tell you with Caleb, it took almost two years of introducing broccoli before he was able to eat it. You know, my He's not eating it right now, by the way. And, 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 and that, happens, you know, it just goes around and around. Sometimes they're eating it. Sometimes they're not. I think, I think normalizing in a sense, sort of like, you know, picky eating happens in toddlerhood so much too, because of the control that toddlers are trying to exhibit. And, and, you know, again, them, them really trying to figure out where they can control things. And I think for parents, just reminding them that this is totally normal and also keep going, you know, it it is the short game is it feels easier to just be a short order cook or to stop serving that, but really just continuing to do it without any pressure, uh, I think is sort of one of the, the big overarching themes that we say when it comes to nutrition, because listen, at the end of the day, it's not nutrition unless it's eaten, right? I mean, we, we, we can't force our children or you shouldn't force your children to eat things. And so it, we have to figure out ways that we can, you know, offer these foods that hopefully someday uh, get eaten because those are the foods we want in the overall diet. And I, I want to talk a little bit about hiding vegetables. Cause that's a big question that comes up. Um, 
it's not nutrition unless it's eaten. So we definitely still want them getting the nutrients from vegetables. So we're, we're completely not against you blending some carrots into your pasta sauce or incorporating broccoli in, in some muffins that you make or whatever it is that you do. We do that all the time. The key is to make sure you're not lying to your kid about it. Because while you're still trying to get them these nutrients, the long-term goal is that they'll want to feed themselves these, these foods. So you can't give up on, it's kind of a two-pronged approach. You keep doing what Alex is talking about. You keep putting that stick of broccoli on the plate even though you know they're not going to eat it and they might not eat it for three years straight, you got to keep providing that exposure while also providing these other ways to meet their nutritional needs so that someday it will all coalesce, <laughs> if yeah, that and, makes sense. And and the, the, the reason behind that too is we want, we want our children to trust. Uh, well, A, we trust them, right? It's the reason that we don't force feed them or make them, you know, not leave the table until they've eaten X, Y, Z. Like, we, we tell them, Hey, I trust you. I am giving you this food and I trust you to decide how much you want to eat. And also we don't want them to feel like they can't trust us with what they're serving them. And so if we're hiding foods or hiding vegetables or whatever it is and different things, like kind of sneaking it in, kids can feel like, Oh, now I can't trust my mom or dad or whoever for what they're giving to me. And then that's going to further sort of erode that relationship and make picky eating even harder. So I know it feels really easy just to be like, I'm going to stick this in there. And I, you know, you, you can, I mean, I serve a lot of smoothies, but I usually Mm -hmm. will tell my son like, oh yeah, I added some kale to that. And he'll be like, oh, okay, great. And just drinks it because he doesn't know. I mean, it's not the same kale in a sense to him as it is when it's sauteed on his plate. Yeah. I think I didn't close the gap with conversation. We do that, but then we explain to them, this is a vegetable. This is in the food. And where I'm curious then, where does choice come in? Like how many choices or options do you let your kid have? Well, both when it comes to eating as well as other behavioral issues, research really shows that like Alex said, because they're, they're trying to find themselves, they're trying to practice autonomy at this point, the more choices that you can give a child, the better, the more that they are going to exhibit positive behaviors. So we, we try to give choices all the time. We don't give open-ended choices. Mm -hmm. It's not, what do you want for dinner? It's, Mm -hmm. uh, do you want these quesadillas or do you want this lasagna that I'm making? Uh, do you want the penne shaped pasta or do you want the spirals pasta? Um, and then also getting kids involved in the kitchen as well so that they feel like they're actually part of the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think forcing sort of the, the choice of options, you know, you have makes the kids feel like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have some control here, yeah. even if, even if they don't. Right. <laughs> and you know, when it, when it comes to overall choice, we talk a lot about this in our book, but there is this concept called division of responsibility in feeding. And what I love so much about it is for any parent who is struggling uh, with feeding their children or feels like mealtimes are these battles that they just dread every night. The division of responsibility is beautiful because it really sets up what you're responsible for and what your child is responsible for. And once that line is drawn, it's like, all right, I did my job. You know, I, I have come to the table with my responsibilities 
if my child's not doing their responsibility, if, as long as my child's doing their responsibilities, that's fine. We don't have to cross. It might not be the same goal that I want. He might not be eating that food I'm serving, but I know I've done my job as a parent and therefore I don't have to stress or be overly concerned or feel like I need to turn this into this control thing because that's really what picky eating is at, at its essence, right? It's a control. Uh, we don't want to make it this battle. And so I think that, you know, if parents really understand what this division looks like and how it, how it is between yourself and the child, it, I think it makes mealtime so much more peaceful and so much more enjoyable when, you know, they, they can be hard. Yeah. So would it be like, let's say, you know, you're giving them the two options of different types of pasta. They choose the squiggly pasta. Yeah. And then are you still serving a vegetable on the plate, even though, right, that wasn't part of the option, it's just there. And so it's more exposure. And would you guys say that's, that's just the best way to get kids who maybe don't like vegetables or eat them often just exposed and potentially get them later to finally pick it up and try it or eat it? Yeah. So, so food exposure is one way. Um, there's also concepts of food play, right? So sort of remake like, yes, broccoli is served on the table, but Hey, maybe completely separate from mealtime, I'm going to make a forest and we're going to take a head of broccoli and cut it up. And I'm going to go get your animals and we're going to play with the broccoli. It is completely non-pressure. That's really what the division of responsibility and feeding is, right? It's, it's taking away the pressure from both yourself and the child. It's saying that it's my job as a caregiver to provide food food. Uh, I decide when we're eating. And then it's my child's job to serve, to decide how much they're going to eat and if they're going to eat it at all. And again, that comes back to their choice too. If they decide they don't want to eat the broccoli. Okay. You know, we, we live to see another day with that broccoli. It's okay. I'm not going to stop feeding it, but taking it off the plate sometimes. And let's say we go to the grocery store and Hey, will you help me pick out the heaviest crown of broccoli you can find pre COVID post COVID, uh, you know, that, (laughs) that's something that they can do. And it makes them feel like they're still being exposed to the food, but really no pressure. We're playing that game of trees and, you know, his little animal figurines. It's like, oh yeah, I'm seeing broccoli again. It's not this foreign thing to me, but there is no pressure even to eat it in this situation. So, you know, there's, there's different tips that we provide in the book that parents can do uh, that, that really research shows is, is the best way to overcome picky eating. What we know does not work is forcing right? Because again, we want to tell them that we trust them. We trust their bodies. We trust what they need and telling them they can't do something until they eat this, or you won't get that until you eat this creates, uh, you know, just, just more control. And it gives our child more like, oh yeah, this is all about control now. And it has nothing to do with feeding. And that can be a really sort of like dangerous territory to get into with a toddler. We also talk in the book about ways to talk about food uh, because the way you're describing a food to your child can have a big impact on, on their thoughts about food in general or that specific food. Um, And this is another area where you can bring in some of that fun and that food play. For example, we always told Caleb that uh, broccoli is Yoda's favorite food and that's why he's green. And Yoda is one of Caleb's favorite uh, characters. And that was one of the things I think that opened the door to him being interested in trying. And he's like, oh, like Yoda likes, Yoda likes broccoli. Oh, all right. Maybe I'll give it a try. And it was a completely non-pressure way to talk about food and just um, uh, taking away the good and the bad that we often hear assigned to foods and just talking a bit about it as a neutral thing. And we've got actual like statements in the book mm-hmm. with like, if you're used to saying this, say this instead. 
Yeah. And, and just lastly, I'll sort of say, you know, we know this is hard, right? Like we're moms ourselves. We know that this is frustrating. It is, it is hard. I will say as someone who, who hates food waste to be like, I'm giving you this thing again. It doesn't have to be even a large serving, but I, I understand how, how frustrating it feels when you feel like you're giving your, your child these foods over and over again that you've cooked, that you want them to love, that you really think they'll love because, you know, they've tried it before and liked it or whatever it may be. Um, but, you know, hang in there because it, it does get easier, especially as a child gets older. We do know this is the path that research continuously shows is best for getting them to, to you know, to have this healthy relationship with food, you know, as they continue to get older. Yeah, and I love the division of responsibility, you know, just letting parents know, like, here's your responsibility. Here's your child's responsibility. Don't put it all on yourself it's because I find, yeah. yeah, I find with so many parents it's, that's, they put so much stress and pressure on themselves, which like you guys said, can sometimes then cause a picky eater. Mm-hmm. So I am curious though, if you have someone coming to you or listening right now where they're in that picky eating mm-hmm. stage and it's gotten to that point, you know, maybe they weren't doing some of the things or not that they weren't, it can just happen too, right? Your kid can just want that extra control. If it gets to a point where, which I have seen in my own practice of a child is eating very minimally mm-hmm. at each meal, mm-hmm. what do you do then you don't want to force them, yeah. but you also want to make sure they're eating enough to grow, right? To gain weight, to sustain. So what, what's your guys' best advice there? Yeah. Well, well, first I will say if, if you feel like picky eating is, is sort of a, a delicate way or, or maybe a, a nice way to describe how your child is eating, you know, if they're eating less than 20 foods or if they feel like their, their palate is actually shrinking and they're taking away even foods they used to love and they're not coming back to it. And it's just sort of getting smaller and smaller. We definitely encourage you to talk to your pediatrician. There are a lot of things that can happen, whether it's, you know, sensory issues to foods, whether it's other sort of things that are going on. And we want to address that as soon as possible. As soon as you notice it, you know, when we talk about picky eating, we're talking about, you know, eating, eating foods, but then having some issues, some foods, perhaps they don't love as much or being resistant, maybe eventually trying it. But if you feel like, nah, something's going on here that just feels different than other children, we definitely want you to talk to your pediatrician, especially if there's been any, any change in your child's growth chart, right? So, uh, growth curves are individualized. Uh, but if you notice, or if your pediatrician notices a big drop or even a, a big upswing in your child's growth chart, we definitely want you to address that with your pediatrician just to rule out other things that are going on. Um, you know, I'm also a fan of a, a multivitamin or a supplement, you know, making sure that you're sort of covering the bases in a sense, if your kid's not able to get those foods from, uh, nutrients from food at that moment, I don't think there's anything wrong, uh, with supplementing, you know, while you're trying to, to overcome some of these strategies. And it's important to like, take a step back and look at the totality of your child's diet. I know how hard it can be in the moment when they reject their entire meal or they're rejecting dinner every night, but you have to think about that's just one meal, or this is just one plate of broccoli. What is he eating overall? Um, sometimes it can be helpful to track their intake for one day, just to get a, a good perspective of, of their nutrient intake and see where there are gaps and whether or not a multivitamin might be a good thing. But nutrition is really about 
our overall diet. It's not, it's not just a snapshot of what we're, what we're eating at one, one meal. So just because they're missing out on say the calcium that they could have gotten from, from broccoli, for example, they could be getting that calcium in their, in their cow's milk or in their plant-based milk alternative. So you have to, you have to look at, at, the big picture. Yeah. And, and optimizing the foods they love, you know, like, I don't think my son has turned down a smoothie yet and not all smoothies I make are amazing. So, you know, I take that opportunity to pack it, right? Like, yeah, we're adding chia seeds. We're using a fortified milk We're you know, nut butters. Yep. Great. Let's add it in. You want to add some <laughs> of that fruit, throw it in. I mean, it's, but he, he loves it. Like he thinks it's so fun. I think he drinks, you know, at least a smoothie a day. Cause he just really loves the process. He helps with his little kitchen helper of making that smoothie. So, you know, that's the opportunity that I feel like, okay, this is a win. I know that, you know, he will never, he hasn't eaten spinach yet uh, on his plate, but he loves it in his smoothies. So that to me feels like, great. It's exposure. We're taking it in and, you know, again, like optimizing where you can, and then yeah, relaxing, you know, just know that you're, you're doing your best. You're taking taking in your responsibility and it's up to your child to the rest. We do these graphics over on our Instagram channel called will eat, won't eat, um, which I think is a, a little fun, fun thing to point out to parents. But for example, my son won't eat beans by themselves, which is a challenge for a plant-based parent when beans are one of our main sources of protein. Um, but he will eat legume pasta. He will eat refried beans when they're put inside a quesadilla. So kind of getting creative about, about where you can meet these nutrient needs too, if they won't eat whatever the standard thing that, that you're usually trying to serve and trying to get the nutrients from. Well, and I'm glad Whitney, you just said that because I wanted to lead in and plug a little how great your guys' recipes are. I mean, I know my sister, what are her two staples? They do the mango chia pudding Mm, and then, um, the straw, is it strawberry or the raspberry like breakfast bake, the oatmeal bake? My niece loves. Like, oh, I, she, I actually feel bad for awesome. her. She's like constantly <laughs> asking her for it. My sister's like, yes, I'll make another one. <laughs> she needs to just start freezing it. Um, but I know in this new book, you guys have a ton more recipes. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to mention that there because your guys' recipes are always so spot on. Um, and I'm curious too. In terms of like sweets and treats for your kids, mm-hmm. where do you feel like that comes into play and when there's a time for that? And I'm sure you guys have recipes that are like, you know, healthier versions of some sweet treats, but I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, there's there's a lot here. You know, it's it's one of the reasons we dedicated almost half of a chapter uh in our book to this topic because there there are so many things to to consider and there's, you know, it's I don't think there's sort of a, a universal one size fits all for for what works for every family and every child. Uh in general, I will say I I think it's a really sort of best practice to avoid added sugars as long as you can, right? So the AAP says definitely before age two, you know, if you've got like a, a single child or, you know, uh, there's not, they're not around a lot of things, the more that you can avoid introducing until they're a little bit later, I think is sort of amazing because once they're exposed to it, it does need to be something that you're going to have to, um, introduce in a way that, that doesn't feel like, this is this really big thing, you know, like my son started going to school 
uh, around two and a half. And, you know, things changed, right? He was now looking at what his friends were bringing for snack or school. And we were having like birthday parties. I feel like every month where there was some other, just like, you know, giant cupcake, uh, that they had to eat. And it was like, oh man, all right, we've got to figure out a way that I talk about this in, in, in a way that feels balanced, but also knowing that I'm not going to start bringing in all of these cupcakes into our home just for introduction. And so I, I think that a few sort of takeaways for parents, um, would be the idea that we really want to lessen the the thrill as much as possible. And what I mean by that is I, I know I grew up in a house where it was like, you know, you get dessert if you do this, or we get, you know, sweet ice cream treats or whatever it may be if we do this and really trying to lessen the if and then. And, and, and one, because we don't want to, you know, teach our kids that you get rewarded for doing things we expect of you, but also because if if the if the message is you have to eat your carrots before you get dessert tonight then the message is like yeah i know carrots aren't great right but mm-hmm. you got to you got to go through them to get the treat and that makes it feel like now carrots are pitted against ice cream instead if it's like oh cool tonight's ice cream night we're going to have some ice cream uh and serving that sort of in a nonchalant like kid uh serving size way i think is sort of a, a really nice approach to make it feel like oh yeah sometimes we get this food and it's not a big deal and i and i don't need it uh, all the time and then once our kids are a little bit older i also think it's a it's a good practice sometimes to allow them to to self-regulate, right? To say, okay, I made cookies today, have as much as you want. And, you know, again, that teaches our children like, oh yeah, when I eat four cookies, I don't feel great. And that's a lesson that you have to learn, you know, that you can't just teach. And it's, it also helps them feel like, yeah, I can enjoy these foods sometimes. And it's, it's not a thing that I, that I'm hiding. You know, I research also shows that the more that we restrict the food, the more our children want it. And that's true with everything in life. So there's, there's a lot of things I know I'm kind of rambling here, but we, we have a lot of, a lot of this in our book because there's just so many things to, to consider, uh, for your child. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel back. Oh, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, I feel like I see the sweet reward a lot of the times Mm. with potty training Mm. or just food rewards in general. Um, which I feel like as adults, it's the same goes for adults. Like we don't want to reward ourselves with food. I know. Um, and that's actually something, I mean, I do feel like even you know, in school, a lot of things were left out that I wish were included in our nutrition programs, but that actually was one thing that I feel like they really honed in on, um, in my childhood nutrition class was do not reward with food. And I'm realizing same for adults, but I'm glad you mentioned that, um, because I see it. I mean, it's more times than not that that is the reward is like a Skittle or, you know, and it's not even it could even, you know, be earlier than they should be having that added sugar. Um, I think that's a really good place to wrap up, but I want to give you guys time to just tell people where can they connect with you? Where can they get a copy of your book, um, or pre-order it? Um, and just really learn more about, you know, the things we talked about today and, grow with you guys and your kids, because that's what I love too, is that you're on the same journey as your community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have all kinds of free resources over on our, our Instagram is updated daily with 
infographics and recipes and just mm-hmm. tons and tons of information for parents. And then we have our website, plantbasedjuniors.com, where we have tons of free resources. We've got our PB3 plate, which is a visual guide to meal planning for parents. Makes takes all of the guesswork out of uh, making sure you're getting the right nutrients on the plate. And so that's free to download. We've got handouts covering things like alternative milks, um, myth-busting documents like uh, do kids really need cow's milk and is soy safe? and uh, really a one-stop shop. So our book is available. I think this interview is going to come out. Is it the week that our book is out? It should come out. Yep. The week the book comes out. So So if you're listening, I think our book's available. (laughs) If it comes out earlier, it's still available for pre-order right now on all major e-tailers and at all major book retailers. Um, Oh, I think I want to mention, we've got some bonuses too. If you buy it, during the first week, you'll also get our extra PDF that has five more veggie centric recipes and a long list of discount codes for all of our favorite brands. So essentially you, the book will pay for itself more, more than like five times over, I think. Yeah. yeah and, 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 and the book really is, you know, the sort of your, your, your complete guide to feeding baby all the way from, you know, infancy to, to three years and beyond. And, you know, like we kind of mentioned in the beginning, Yes, it is um, plant-based nutrition. All of the recipes are 100% plant-based, but it's not just for plant-based moms or parents. Sorry, I say moms a lot, and I know that's not inclusive. Uh, parents, it's just because I'm a mom, and I'm so used to talking about <laughs> myself. Um, but I, you know, it's it's really for for anyone who wants to give their child a healthy start. You know, we we cover all the different ways to introduce solids, best practices. We have some really great visuals. Uh, you know, and I know when I started doing baby led weenie. I was Googling a lot, like how to cut a carrot for baby led weenie, because you know, it's, it's arbitrary. And I wanted to see that visual. So we have pages of different visuals, uh, combinations, simple ideas, uh, meal pairing for, you know, optimal nutrition. We dive into a lot of sort of these, these FAQs that we kind of touched on here, picky eating, how to maximize nutrition, food play, division of responsibility, how to introduce sweets in a way that doesn't feel like, you know, you're, you're just giving your children all these things, but also doing it in a really responsible way. And then it also has 50 recipes and the recipes are everything from, you know, uh, infant friendly recipes to tons of family options, toddler snacks, because toddlers, it feels like snack just all day long. Uh, and, and anyway, so, so just lots of different things and all of the recipes are completely brand new. So you're not, everything that you see in the book, um, is going to be new if you've followed us for a while. Oh my gosh. That's, I don't know how you guys do it all to be honest. Um, so much coffee. (laughs) So I have some quick Q and A's for you guys, actually, um, a little bit of a rapid fire. So first thing that comes to mind, um, but we'll start Whitney, we'll have you go first and then Alex. So first one is what is your favorite de-stressing practice or support tool? I really like yoga. I'm a big yogi. I like that I can do it anywhere. Um, I've been doing it long enough that I don't even need to follow a video or anything. I can just drop down and do some downward dog and I automatically feel better. (laughs) What about you, Alex? Oh, I'm next. Okay. The first thing that came to mind probably wasn't a uh, safer work. So I, I would say, yeah, I, I like to, I'm really into running lately. That's been like my, like nice. get out of jail free card. I think it's because we're just all cooped up at home. And when I run, it's like, no one can touch me. 
literally. Yeah. So it's like freedom. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. There's no one on me running uh, away from a house full of screaming children. Exactly. Well, and I, and obviously I like love podcasts. So it's also my way to be like, yeah. oh, I'm going to listen to this and just go on a nice uh, long run. I know I'm the same way. That's like my time to listen to podcasts as well, exercising and working yes. out. And it's just such a great mental break. Um, so you guys may have already answered this one, but coffee or tea? Coffee. coffee. <laughs> More coffee. Um, and we're, then my, we're both addicts. I'm sorry, but yeah. Yeah. Somebody's <laughs> coffee with I've got my three beverages here. Always, right? Always three beverages at a time. <laughs> um, and then this is my favorite question. What is each of your favorite home cooked meal? Mm. Oh, I know mine. Uh, pasta. Pasta. I mean, particular kind, Alex, or like, so I'm, I know, I know I, I make good pasta and I homemade, I make a lot of homemade pasta. I'm Italian. I like wrote an Italian cookbook. I (laughs) I love pasta. I get made fun of all the time with my husband because he's like, could care less about pasta. And it's always like, oh my God, again. And I'm like, yes, it's only been like 12 hours since we've had our last bowl. But, um, my favorite. (laughs) My favorite is like a good mushroom bolognese um, or just like a simple like aioli sauce with homemade pasta. Love it. We're big pizza eaters over here at this house. Um, I do pita pizzas a lot so everybody can pick their own toppings and just endless possibilities. I love that. And you, Whitney, you always have that on your Instagram too, which I always follow along and just like pizza all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I know if you pizza guys, I waffles, mean, that's what's going on yeah. over here. <laughs> that is true. Waffles. I feel like that is a lot of it. Um, but <laughs> Wits, really, Wits I waffles mean, are the best. Yeah. You've got a the, waffle recipe in the book. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, just the content you guys put out there between plant-based juniors and then your own channels as well. Um, it's so educational and informative, but what I love and what I loved about today is it's also so relatable and you really are just trying to take the pressure off of parents and, you know, off of people, even for themselves and their eating habits. And that's what I love. So thank you so much for coming on today. It was also just so good to see your guys face again as well. (laughs) Um, and I'm so excited for you and the book to come out. I can't wait to get my hands on it. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. It was so good to chat with you. A big takeaway from this week's episode is to make it a standard to always offer at least one vegetable at most meals or snack times, whether that's to your own plate, your child's plate, or both. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can watch every episode of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. Naturally Well is hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.